it, Red Arms. Give it your all. We'll drink the wine till the cup is dry and kiss the girls on down the cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance with Jack of the Shadows. And welcome back to another episode of Tales of a Red Arm. I am one of your hosts, Justin. And I'm the other one, James. The other one! Just kidding. Anyway, uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us for another episode. Episode 30, Chapter 29, um, Eyes Without Pity. So, we are back in the seat again of Perrin's perspective with Egwene and Elias. Um, we kind of just left off with Nynaeve, Lan, and Moraine getting to Whitebridge and appearing to leave Whitebridge in search for what we assume to be Perrin and Egwene, without really knowing about Egwene. Um, so, the last time we heard from Perrin, Egwene, and Elias, they were just parting ways with the Tuatha on. And now, after taking all that leisurely time, uh, Elias is now pushing for some speed and is trying to really, really, really get across a whole lot of territory pretty quickly. Um, now, with how it's currently going with the reading this chapter in the early section... It's a lot of descriptions about how he's covering their tracks and, you know, overturning this things and that things. Um, but basically, he's very, very particular about making sure no one can see that they were ever there. Which mm. is a good thing if somebody's chasing you, which he is convinced that there is. Perrin's not thinking much is going to do about it, considering that it's, they're, you know where they're at and how it's everything's been affecting the dreams and whatnot. Um, Egwene had asked if the Trollocs were back and Eli shook his head and pushed him further on. Um, Perrin doesn't tell her anything, but he knew that there were no Trollocs because the wolves only could get, you know, the usual wildlife and everything around nearby. Um, but Something is driving Elias, not Trollocs, but something that Elias doesn't appear to be even aware of, of what it is. He just knows that it's there. He's like, it's time to go. We go. Um, and the wolves don't know what it is, but they are just like, oh, Elias is on edge, so we're going to be on edge, too. Um, so the wolves go ahead and scout and make sure, you know, nothing's ambushing or whatever. And... We get some more descriptions about the terrain and whatnot, which, again, you can read. In it, and It's not necessarily detrimental to our discussion, so I'm not really going to cover it. Mm. You should be reading it anyway in the book, so read it in the book. Um, finally, they get to some uh, ridges, <clears throat> and he's kind of going in between them as opposed to going over them. Like He's, he's trying to avoid topping a rise and then someone spotting them. So he's trying to like go through the little valleys and stuff, but he's also trying to do it in a kind of a sneaky way. Um, so he gets, he's mostly staying quiet, but when he does talk, he 
goes off like this one phrase. You know how long this is taking going around every bloody little hill like this? Blood and ashes. It'll be till summer till getting my hand getting you off my hands. No, we can't just go in a straight line. How many times do I have to tell you? You have any idea, even the faintest, how a man stands out on a ridge line in a country like this? Burn me, but we're going back and forth as much as forward. Wiggling like a snake. I can move faster with my feet tied. Well, are you going to stare at me or are you going to walk? <laughs> you can tell he's a bit on edge. No, uh, uh, good old Elias. Yeah, he has a way with words. So Perrin and Egwene are looking at each other like, yeah, this is rough. So Egwene does what you know, any mature young lady would do and sticks her tongue out at the back of his head. Um, of course. Yeah, expect nothing less from her anymore. Um, Rude. <laughs> I think she was rude. rude. She did stick rude, her tongue out at somebody's back of head. So. so the truth is rude when your life is built on lies, good sir. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Real truth. Boom. Um, Tuck that away for later. I know. Right? <laughs> no, you don't have to. Um, Egwene, or oh, really? Uh, so... Yeah, they basically have their little banter back and forth between Egwene and Elias, and he, you know, lectures her, but never really even stops to really give her the lecture. They, like, keep moving while talking. Um, but even when Elias is talking, he's still doing the security sweep around the the, the areas and through the forest and the hills and everything. Um, Perrin couldn't see anything, the wolves couldn't see anything, but Elias, well, his furrowed brow, if you will, kind of duplicated itself multiple times. Um, but he can't explain to them why they need to hurry, just that he needs to hurry. And he can't explain what's hunting them. Um, so there's a lot of really weird ridges that are go miles and miles and he has to agree going around those would take far too way out along. So he doesn't just let them go over, though. He leaves them at the base of the slope, crawls to the tip, looks over the edge of it, and looks around even when the wolves had been there, you know, 10 minutes before. Um, and they wait at the bottom of the ridge minutes past, like hours. No one knows what's going on. Egwene, you know, being anxious, chews her lips and stuff. And she taps the beads on that Aram had given her. And, um, Perrin's, you know, just kind of waiting, but he's, you know, feeling kind of sick because, I mean, he's learning that he can talk to wolves. He's also aware that they're being hunted, but he doesn't know by what, so it's driving him nuts. Um, but he's like, eh, the wolves will warn if there's danger. I mean, it'd be wonderful. They just went away if they vanish, but right now, eh, they'll give warning. Um, and he starts to wonder what Elias is looking for, particularly at the top of the crest. So, um, Elias, you know, keeps looking, keeps looking, keeps looking. And then he finds, you know, more and more ridges after that ridge that they have to stop. And at the third ridge, um, he's, Perrin, is you know, not feeling very good. And he's just like, I'm going to vomit at this rate. <laughs> um, so Elias says, keep low. So 
as soon as Elias says keep low, Egwene jumps off of Bella and Elias kind of stops, turns around, looks at her and is like, are you expecting to make the horse crawl? <laughs> and she kind of like, uh, 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 like she's moving her mouth. Nothing's coming out of it. And she just, you know, shrugs and Elias just whatever. Um, and then she walks up with Perrin coming after him. I guess she wanted to come up the request with them, but Bella's not going to be able to do that. So, um, and actually in hindsight, it's actually a good thing because you don't want to be that far away from a horse when you're slow. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. Um, so they get to the top of the crest and, Elias tells him to flatten himself, so he gets off, uh, takes off his hat and little raccoon hat, because you know. Uh, I keep forgetting that. Yeah, well, I mean it's not necessarily raccoon; it could be rabbit, it could mm. be whatever. But I just call it a coon hat because that's the typical, stereotypical type. It's not by any means guaranteed to be a raccoon. Uh, just uh, who's that? Uh, American figure, David Crockett. Yes, David I, Crockett. I, well, okay. he's not the only person; he's just the more most famous, probably one that wears it. Um, but I mean, that's the stereotype for, you know, when somebody orders a fur cap, it's probably that, or, um, like in the Russian, the Russian hats, they have those really big fluffy ones. Um, oh, the Yushankos? Uh, it, not the Yushankos. It's the ones that like, it goes up. It's just like one piece up. Um, okay. I, I don't know. I, I know about the Yushankos, but it's not those that I'm thinking about, but I wouldn't expect him to be wearing a Yushanka. Mostly because Yushankas are more of a modern design than a uh, this far back. Just taking like a muskrat or something and flinging it together to make a hat, not very terribly difficult. Making Yushanka a little bit more difficult. <laughs> um, but needless to say, I'm not saying that it is in fact a raccoon. I just refer to it as the raccoon hat because that's how it that's how it appears in my head because it wasn't described beyond that it's fur. Um, so they're looking around. They don't see the, hor the, not the horses, the wolves don't sense anything about Trollocs or Murdral. And they're about a mile ahead. Um, and I'll have you, or uh, parents wondering what he's looking for and he doesn't see anything. And I'll have you pick up from here. We're wasting time. He said, starting to stand. A flock of ravens burst out of the trees below. Fifty, a hundred blackbirds, spiraling into the sky. He froze in a cr in a crouch as he they milled over the trees. The dark one's eyes. Did they see me? Sweat trickled down his face. As if he had one ear thought, he had he suddenly sparked in a hundred tiny minds. Every raven broke sharply in the same direction, south. The flock disappeared over the next year rise, already descending. To the east, another thicket he discoursed more ravens. The black mass wheeled it twice and headed south. Shaking, he lowered himself to the ground slowly. He tried not tried to speak, but his mouth was too dry. After a minute, he managed to work up some spit. Was that what you were afraid of? Why didn't you say anything? Why didn't the wolves see them? 
Wolves don't look into trees much. Elias growled. And no, I wasn't looking for that. I told you. I didn't know what. Far to the west, a black cloudy rose over yet another grove and winged southward. They were too far off here to make out individual birds. It isn't a big hunt, like the light. They don't know, even after. He turned to set back the way they had come. Parents swallowed, even after the dream Elias had meant. Not big, he said. Back home, you won't even see that many ravens in a whole year. Elias shook his head. In the borderlands, I've seen he sweeps here with a thousand ravens to the flock. Not too often. There's a bounty on ravens there. That hasn't happened. Wolsey is still, still looking south. Or still looking north. Hush now. Perrin felt it, then. The effort of him reaching out here to the distant wolves. Elias here wanted the Dapple and her companions here to be quit scouting ahead. To hurry back and need to check their back trail. His already gaunt face tightened and thinned under the strain. The wolves here were so far away, apparently could not even feel them. Hurry. Watch the sky. Hurry. Let me guess it. He, uh, cut out again? No, no, you're good. Oh, okay. Just trying to see what you have. <laughs> I didn't have to take you outside and beat you. <laughs> Oh, goody. <laughs> For anyone who's not aware, we were having some technical difficulties and trying to get them to work. So, yeah. I'm just getting more time. Yeah. So, it's kind of freaky, honestly, you know, seeing a lot of ravens and then thinking, you know, oh, that's not so bad. And then he's like, well, I've seen attacks a lot bigger than this one. and They're not pleasant. And you're like, uh, maybe I don't like this. And then basically recalling the wolves and saying, you know, get back here as soon as you can, but watch yourselves. So, basically Perrin catches a faint uh, response from way, way down south where the wolves were about them coming back. And an image flashes at his mind and wolves running, muzzles pointed to the wind in their haste, running as if wildfire raced behind them. And it just disappears really quick. Um, Elias drops down to the uh, top of the crest and draws a deep breath. And he's looking over the ridge, then back to north. And he's just muttering like, ugh. And you can go ahead and pick up this part. You think there are more ravens behind us? Perrin asked. Could be. Elias said vaguely. They do it that way sometimes. I know a place. If I can't reach it by dark, we have to keep moving until it's full dark anyway. Even if we don't get there, but we can't hear going as fast as I would like. Can't afford to get here too close to the ravens ahead of us. But they were behind us too. Why dark? Aaron said. What place? Somewhere safe here from the ravens? Safe from ravens? I said. But too many people know. Ravens roost for the night. We don't have to worry about them finding us in the, the dark. The light here sends ravens in our if only we have here to be worried about then. With the one more look over the crest, he rose and waved here to Egwene to bring Bella up. But dark is a long way off. You have to get moving. 
He started down near the far slope in a shambling run, his ride barely catching him on the edge via the fall of falling. Move, burn you! So, Elias, a man of many words. I know, right? <laughs> so, outring birds. Yeah, so they have birds south of them, the direction they're going, but also potentially birds to the north. Now, obviously, Elias would be the only one who would know about this potential tactic, due to the fact that he has obviously been to the borderlands at some point in his life. Um, the wolves wouldn't know, because they don't look up very often. Um, and obviously Perrin and Egwene wouldn't know, because <clears throat> typically the ravens they have to deal with at home are too few in number to really be a bother. And there's a lot of ways farmers can get rid of ravens if ravens are causing problems, a.k.a. archery, which we already know that they have really good archers in the two rivers, um, mm -hmm. and slings and other things like that, which besides the random supernatural ravens that Matt and Rand had ran into, or not ran into, threw rocks at back in uh, Emmons Field, they don't really have to worry about them that much. Um, it's not that big of a deal, and the Dark One's not going to just send flocks to random villages just because. I mean, he could, but it's not really a reason to. <clears throat> um, so, they're running down from this crest, trying to get down. So, they're moving, and... Um, when I should say more directionally, they're moving towards the south over the uh, ridge and uh, Egwene comes up behind them clearing it putting Bella to a trot and she sees them and she's going like what's going on you all disappeared what happened and he's kind of running and then she catches up and he's like ravens like he's out of breath trying to like get it out and she doesn't know what's going on still so she's not really saying much so he doesn't really finish anything but eventually he tells her the story as they're running while elias is scouting anyway and <laughs> perrin apparently does not understand why and he's like you just want to saunter right into the middle of a whole bunch of ravens boy <laughs> so um Egwene stares at the crest of the ridge licking her lips as if she wanted to go with elias this time but also wanted to stay where she was um so elias is like i'm gonna go and Perrin wonders if the ravens ever doubled back. It'd be really disappointing to reach the crest at the same time as a flock of ravens, which he has a point. It'd be extremely unpleasant. <clears throat> so I'm going to take this part. At the top, he inched his head up until he could just see and heaved a sigh of relief when all he saw was a copse of trees a little to the west. There were no ravens to be seen. Abruptly, a fox burst out of the trees, running hard. Ravens poured from the branches after it. The beat of their wings almost drowned out a desperate whining from the fox. A black whirlwind dove and swirled around it. The fox's jaws snapped at them, but they darted in and darted away untouched. The black beaks glistening wetly. The fox turned back toward the trees, seeking the safety of its den, it ran awkwardly now, head low, fur dark and bloody, and the ravens flapped around it, more and more of them at once, the fluttering mass thickness until it hid the flock fox completely. As suddenly as they had descended, the ravens rose, 
wheeled, and vanished over the next rise to the south. A misshapen lump of torn fur marked what had been the fox. Perrin swallowed hard. Light. They could do that to us. A hundred ravens. They could... Move, Elias growled, jumping up. He waved to Egwene to come on, and without waiting, set off a trot towards the trees. Move, burn you, he called over his shoulder. Move! Egwene galloped Bella over the rise and caught them before they reached the bottom of the slope. There was no time for explanation, but her eyes picked out the fox right away. Her face went as white as snow. Elias reached the trees and turned there, at the edge of the copse, waving vigorously for them to hurry. Perrin tried to run faster and stumbled. Arms windmilling, he barely caught himself short of going flat on his face. Blood and ashes! I'm running as fast as I can! A lone raven winged out of the copse. It tilted toward them, screaming and spun toward the south. Knowing he was already too late, Perrin fumbled his sling from around his waist. He was still trying to get a stone from his pocket at the sling when the raven abruptly folded up in midair and plummeted to the ground. His mouth dropped open, and then he saw the sling hanging from Egwene's hand. She grinned at him unsteadily. Don't stand there counting your toes, Elias called. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, that's a great time. I, I know it is. Don't stand there counting your toes. This This series literally has so many good phrases like that. They need to make a book just to those phrases and call it like a haiku by Robert Jordan or something like it's, it's legit. They have some good stuff. Um, they're great phrases to use at people so you can insult people without them realizing they're insulted. But so, yeah. Um, this instance with the fox It's yeah, very unfortunate that... for the fox. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't say. It's just. I mean, I don't really understand the purpose of the ravens attacking him, just to kill it, and then leave. Like I figured, like you know, attack it, kill it, eat it, sure, but going down there, pegging the thing to death, and then just leaving just seems kind of weird. Especially since they did it so fast, there's not really enough time for them to like peel flesh off its bones or something. So I don't really see the purpose other than just it's downright evil <laughs> and that's what's driving them. So that makes sense, I guess. But yeah. I don't know why, but this entire thing reminds me of like a a stealth game like Hitman, Assassin's Creed or Splinter Cell where, you know, you got the security forces looking around for people and you're wandering behind them trying to stay out of their little vision and stuff, hiding behind things when they turn around and you know, waiting for them to pass and crisscross each other. That's basically what it feels like they're doing, where the obstacles that they're hiding in are the trees, and they have to run across these big open areas without alerting anything. And all it takes is one raven to spot them and get out of range of their slings, and they're going to have a, a whole horde of ravens descend upon them. And maybe up to that thousand that he was talking about, especially if there's some behind them up to the north and a whole bunch to the south. You, you don't know. Like, it's just a big wave of a whole bunch. Um, so, it, it's definitely interesting. And I'd say it's pretty motivating to, you know, 
get moving once you see that fox. And, of course, Egwene spotted the fox without having to really be any say because it's noticeable, especially probably from horse. So, hmm. definitely a, a grotesque example of what's going to happen to them if they don't survive. So, pretty good incentive to survive, I suppose. Although Elias is obviously, you know, making mincemeat out of both of them, whether they're on a horse or on foot, just like yeah. he's booking it from place to place. Like, I don't need a horse. So he, as you'd say, runs with wolves and he runs as with wolves. So. Fair enough. I know Kevin Costner's jealous right now. Um, mm. Although he's dancing with wolves, not running with wolves. My bad. Although I, I suppose Elias would probably dance with wolves better than Kevin Costner too, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> he actually understands when, wolves way better than Kevin Costner ever could. So, look, we're not calling anyone's ability to dance into question here. We're just—I mean, we are, but <laughs> me, you are, but <laughs> Kevin Costner, um, at least for that particular instance. Um, so, so Aaron. Uh, it's light. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, Perrin runs into the trees, then leaps out of the way because Egwene's about to trample him, running him down to get in there. So, um, almost out of sight, a big dark mist of ravens pops up into the air. And he realizes by feeling the wolves that they're coming from that direction, heading north. And he felt them notice the ravens to the left and the right of them, but they didn't slow down. And this big mist of ravens pulls towards the uh, wolves trying to catch them, but then break off and head south. And Egwene's like, maybe they saw us? We were already in the trees, weren't we? They can't see us from that far away, could they? And he's like, we saw them at that distance. And... Perrin's, of course, uncomfortable with this. So Egwene kind of like, <gasps> you know, a little bit of a frightened gasp, if you will, drawing it in anyway. And um, he's like, if they had seen us, they'd been down on us like they were on that fox. Think if you want to stay alive. Fear will kill you if you don't control it. His penetrating stare held both of them for a moment and he nods. All right, they're gone now and we need to be too. Keep those slings handy. Might be good for us to use them again. If necessary. So they move out of the cops. And Elias angles them slightly westward from the line of the march they had been following. Um, Perrin is just out of breath. Like, you could tell this dude's built stamina-wise in the forge. He's not built stamina-wise for running for long. <laughs> we dwarves are not crossed crunchy spitches. Very dangerous over a short distance. <laughs> <laughs> Although he's a little bit bigger. Um, but Elias just keeps going on without seeming to be tired at all, which, I mean, I imagine he's been doing this for quite some time, so he probably is used to it. Um, but Elias knows of a safe place. So he says, I should say. So they go to the next hill, wait for the ravens to move on, then run again, and then wait again. And then run again. Um, it's very slow progress, but they move. At the rate they're moving, it's already tiring. But Elias 
is starting to uh, lag from this. Perrin's obviously dying. So he's, he's gulping for air. And then he just kind of like lays on a hilltop, letting Elias search for things while he's catching his breath. You can't really blame him. It, it can get really tiring, especially if you're on edge because you got a whole bunch of birds trying to kill you. Strip you. Yeah. Look at the bones! Sorry. <laughs> Money Python reference. Um, so Bella kind of like is out of breath too, which is amazing because she's a horse and she's running with humans. Um, you think that would be very wouldn't be very difficult, but um, parents not really sure if fear is controlling them or if they're controlling their fear, but he just wished the wolves would tell him what's you know back behind them, if anything was, and. Now that Perrin kind of looks over the edge again, there's so many ravens, he's not happy to see them, and he never wants to see them ever again. And to the left and the right, there's big black clouds of these ravens puffing up and going to the south. And they would come across these little cops of trees and different little forest zones and whatnot. Where they would land and then instantly burst right back out with even more ravens. So it's just like... It's like a, a general going through villages and recruiting troops as they're going. It's just like every time they go somewhere, boom, there's more. Um, and all, all it really takes is for some of those ravens to stay where they're at. And these guys run into that cops. And then it's game over. Um... So several times the ravens had done that and you got a whole bunch of them, you know, just sitting in the open, frozen statues. And then a hundred of the ravens are just flashing off in the distance about a mile to the east. Um, Perrin's dripping with sweat, even though the wind's hitting them. And... Whenever they stop seeing the last black speck of a raven, he's just like, poof, we're, that's that's when we go. Um, but they had to kill quite a few stragglers with their slings. Luckily for these guys, that is something they are good with, and they have two of them at least to deal with any stragglers, but it's a very nerve wracking instance of having to deal with stragglers. Um, and he keeps seeing things that the Ravens descend upon and just destroy utterly. Um, several times they find like rabbits that had gotten torn to pieces um, with its head sitting upright and, it's other little pieces like legs and entrails scattered amongst a rough circle. So at least this one, it looked like they actually try to eat. Um, but they even stabbed into a bunch of feathers and whatnot. Um, then there are even some more foxes that they came across. And I guess here's the explanation for why they're just killing for the sake of killing is um, that the Dark One's creatures delight in killing and that the Dark One's power is death. And he remembers Lan telling him that. Um, but 
It's like, what happens if the Ravens find them? They got these black, pitiless eyes um, and they're stabbing beaks, you know, needle sharp beaks, like very, very dangerous weaponry. And you'd think it would be a pretty solid military usage of these guys if you had enough of them. And he's like, sheesh, a hundred of them drilling you like you're being poked full of holes and leaking blood everywhere. Um, and he's like, well, can they get more of them to hunt for us and whatever this and that and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, but you think that one of these hundreds would like come across a village and just swarm the village and kill everyone in it. Um, but never. Maybe, but you know. I mean, um, if you wanted to stop people from getting supplies or, you know, whatever you can do to just damage morale, you could just send a thousand yeah, of these could, suckers in and just wipe out stuff. Yeah, I could imagine it like, you know, they couldn't be used quite well as uh, demoralizing and harassing units, but I don't imagine like they would be able to do actually like any strong physical damage, you know, in a warfare sense, but still. Well, not I'm not talking against like soldiers. I'm talking against villages. No, no, no. Like even you just said like relations. I don't imagine like they could achieve that much. Still, like you know, quite. Well, I mean, look know. at what they're running from. They're running away from a hundred, and yeah, they're seeing creatures guess... getting like literally stripped to the bones. In a matter of yeah, seconds, quite, they they would be like you know quite good at see like uh. I'm not talking normal ravens. I'm talking ravens specifically that are the dark ones creatures. Buff so, ravens. Yeah. Swole so, ravens. Swole. So with you, if you got like let's say a thousand sharp needle beaks and you're just ripping at people, you will turn a person into that fo- those foxes and rabbits and other little birds really really quickly. Just, just easily as a village, whether it be, you know, women, children, men, old, young, muscular, non-muscular, you're going to get poked full of holes, torn to pieces, brought down and swarmed. How many birds does it take to kill one person? I don't know. But you got to remember, you know, animals have teeth and they can't catch these birds. What are humans going to do? Flail? They don't, it's not like they're going to have like a power hose or something. They can just <laughs> knock them out of the sky or anything. The super soaker 10 billion or something, you know, um, they, they don't have, you know, the ability to like fireball the air or something and just like take out a huge chunk of them. But even if you did fireball the air, there's a thousand of them. So you're only going to kill, you know, maybe a couple hundred before, you know, your fireball gets cast and they dodge around it and plow right into you. Like it's, it's not going to be a pretty thing, but, um, so Perrin wonders if maybe they can call more, more of themselves in there, um, from a distance or whatever, but he's just seeing like a whole bunch of ravens on a hill moving around like maggots fighting over a few bloody pieces. And now that thought gets wiped out and replaced by some of the wolves and the wolves find the ones from the North and the birds are diving and trying to, you know, get the wolves and the wolves are trying to get out of the way. They're trying to snap in at the raver, uh, the Ravens, but the wolves, unlike the foxes and stuff actually managed to get some of the Ravens. <laughs> um, granted there's only one maw per wolf and they can only, you know, bite, drop, bite, drop, bite, drop so many times that they can get hit by a lot of ravens. 
And they're feeling a lot of pain, gashes, and whatnot. And even though wolves don't die as easily as foxes, they could still get hurt. But then all of a sudden, the ravens, you know, are like, ah, screw this, we're out. And they, they back off. But. Nope. Nope, what? No, I just see it, the ravens just going, nope. Not worth it. But the wolves take their fair share of injuries. So Wynn has a puncture in his left foreleg. Um, there's something wrong with one of Hopper's eyes and Dapple has got injured, but she gathers them together and they settle on a painful lope towards the direction the Ravens had gone. And you know, they're covered in fur and they're like, we're, we're coming, but there's danger coming before us. And, uh, parents kind of like moving towards Elias and Elias is looking at him and he's like, he knows, he just watched Perrin, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And Perrin's realizing, like, oh, he's waiting for me to admit I can tell that the wolves are coming. And Perrin's like, ah, Ravens, behind us. And, of course, Egwene's right there. I mean, she shouldn't be panting since she's been on a horse the entire time. But um, she's like, he's right. You can't talk to them. And it's like, ah! It's like, who cares if he can talk to wolves? We're running from supernatural ravens. <laughs> like, what's... That's not exactly the prime element of now, is it? <laughs> it's like, no, you, can, you can talk to wolves. Who cares? We're surviving ravens. <laughs> you can talk to wolves. And you're an idiot. Yeah. Let's keep moving. Just keep moving. So Perrin feels like his feet turn into, you know, giant piles of iron. <laughs> at the end of wood posts and he's trying to make them all move faster and uh, you know he wants to outrun everyone whether it be Elias and Egwene looking at him he wants to outrun the uh, the ravens he wants to outrun the wolves but Egwene's eyes bother him so much right now and the viewpoint he's thinking in his head about what Egwene might be thinking is what are you tainted the light blind me cursed and that leaves a lot of things open to interpretation, I suppose. But um, mm-hmm. so at this point, he, his throat's dry, you know, from the thoughts or from the running. Could be both. Uh, he's running alongside Bella, holding on to the stirrup as she climbed down and all but pushes him into the saddle. And he's like, I can keep going. I can keep going. And she's like, ah, huh, whatever. So she grabs her skirts and just starts running. Um, then he pops down and then she puts her back on because, you know, she's too tired. Like she's got less stamina than he does. Um, and he's a big boy, but Elias isn't slowing down. He, you know, pushes them further and, you know, picks on them and whatnot. And, uh, Basically, his motivation or speech for them running is, keep moving, burn you. Think you'll do any better than that fox did if they catch us? The one with its insides piled on its head? And, of course, Egwene leans over the edge and just... Bleh! And he's like, I knew you'd remember. Just keep going a little more. That's all. Just a little more. Burn uh, you, I thought... What? Do you want to get horribly mangled? Just... Yeah, basically. And he's like, burn you. I thought farm youngsters had endurance. Work all day and dance all night. Sleep all day and sleep all night. Looks like to me, move your bloody feet. Yeah, he's, he's, he's really pulling like the freaking army sergeant on him. And uh, uh-huh. 
It makes it makes Elias very endearing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Elias, I thought I thought you were cool. Just <laughs> I mean he is. But <laughs> well, yeah, but not right now. No, he is. He, he's working overtime for these youngsters. He doesn't have to stick around. He's doing a lot of work to make sure these guys are getting out of the safe. He has no obligations to them whatsoever. However, with Perrin's situation, maybe he feels like, hmm, we could add one to the ranks, and that's why he's sticking around. I don't know. Maybe it's he just doesn't want to let the Dark One just kill whoever they wish. You know? <laughs> maybe. I mean, there could be countless reasons, but maybe it's the wolves, like Dapple, wants to stick around because of them. So, um, and then they see all these ravens ahead of us. Or ahead of us, ahead of them. I'm there personally, guys. Little did you know. Um, and then he's like, yeah, "Oh, this is an AVR uh, just you. Yeah, give it a bit. An AVR. When the budget, yeah, when the budget clears. You mean an augmented virtual reality? Sure, why not? That's literally doesn't make any sense because augmented is when you don't have virtual. Well, I said VR. I heard AVR. I was just like, what the heck is AVR? There's AR, augmented reality, and then there's VR, virtual reality. Did I say that? Or was, he, yeah. was I saying, like, a VR experience? Well, either way, it still comes out as AVR. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, maybe they'll come out with that. That's not something somebody's going to want to enjoy, though, because that would hurt. Um, but they're like, all it takes is one bird to look backwards. And to the east and the west, they got more ravens searching. He's like, one bird is all it takes. And then the birds behind were coming really, really fast. And the, the wolves are trying to work their way around um, them and coming on without stopping to lick their wounds. But they had learned all the lessons they needed about watching the sky. <laughs> They're like, how close? How long? And the wolves had no notions of time, how men understand them. But they don't have a reason to divide day into hours. It's just, you know, it's daytime, it's nighttime. It's daytime, it's nighttime. Um, and the seasons, you know, it's autumn, spring, winter, summer. Not in those orders. <laughs> but um, that's all they care about. That and light in the dark. Um, so Perrin puts the sun uh, image standing in the sky when the ravens overran them from behind. And he glanced over his shoulder at the setting sun. And he's like, about an hour. So he kind of pictures that to them. And he's thinking to himself, like, we're going to die when the sun sets. And he's just staggering. He's like, slaughtered like that fox. And he's like, eh, even with my sling or my axe. Definitely not with the axe. He's like, I'm not going to be able to deal against 100 ravens. And um, Egwene's tired, which is funny because she's been running like once or twice the entire time. And she's like, it's your turn to ride Perrin. And he's like, eh, I'm good for miles yet. We'll keep going. And she doesn't even argue with him. She's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he can tell she's like, she's tired. Do I tell her that we have a chance to escape? Or do I give her an hour of hope? Even if it's desperate? I mean, imagine these guys have been running four hours. Not not four hours. Four as an F-O-R, like several hours. They've been running several hours constantly trying to avoid being picked off and torn to shreds. That's exhausting. I mean, four hours, like actual, the number four hours, is like the time a lot of people do a marathon. That's 17 miles. Now, how many miles they're actually going, I can't tell you. 
a typical military would probably cover 20 to 30 miles if they were doing like a really heavy march in a day. But that's an entire army. So without that, you should be able to go a lot faster and cover distance quicker. But they're also stopping, keep making sure everything behind them is, you know, fixed because Elias is very particular when they leave camp and stuff. Um, they're stopping at every ridge of any big crests and whatnot that go for miles. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff they're doing. So they have got to be exhausted. Now you're telling like, oh, by the way, we have a whole other hour to go until they catch us. So he's thinking, we're going to have to go for a whole other hour and hope we can get through. But I'll pick up this part here after I take a sip of water so I don't die. Because obviously I talk a lot. <laughs> if you didn't notice. Elias was watching him again, saying nothing. He must know, but he did not speak. Perrin looked at Egwene again and blinked away hot tears. He touched his axe and wondered if he had the courage. In the last minutes, when the ravens descended on them, when all hope was gone, would he have the courage to spare her the death the fox had died? Light, make me strong. The ravens ahead of them suddenly seemed to vanish. Perrin could still make out dark, misty clouds far to the east and west, but ahead, nothing. Where did they go? Light, if we've overrun them. Abruptly, a chill ran through him. One cold, clean tingle, as if he had jumped into the wine spring water in midwinter. It rippled through him, and he seemed to carry away some of his fatigue, a little of the ache in his legs, and the burning of his lungs. It left behind... something. He could not say what. Only he felt different. He stumbled to a halt and looked around, afraid. Elias watched him, watched them all, with a gleam behind his eyes. He knew what it was. Parent was sure of it. But he only watched them. Egwene reined in Bella and looked around uncertainly, half wondering and half fearful. It's strange, she whispered. I feel as if I lost something. Even the mare had her head up expectantly, nostrils flaring as if they detected a faint odor of a new mown hay. What? What was that? Perrin asked. Elias cackled suddenly. He bent over, shoulders shaking, to rest his hands on his knees. Safety! That's what! We made it, you bloody fools! No raven will cross that line. Not one that carries the Dark One's eyes, anyway. A Trolloc would have to be driven across, and there'd need to be something fierce pushing the merge all to make him do the driving. No Aes Sedai, either. The One Power won't work here. They can't touch the true source. Can't even feel the source. Like it vanished. Makes them itch inside, that does. Gives them the shakes like a seven-day drunk. It's safety! At first... To Perrin's eyes, the land was unchanged from the rolling hills and ridges they had crossed the whole day. Then he noticed green shoots among the grass. Not many, and they were struggling, but more than he had seen anywhere else. There were fewer weeds in the grass, too. He could not imagine what it was, but there was something about this place. And something in what Elias said tickled his memory. 
What is it? Egwene asked. I feel... What is this place? I don't think I like it. A steading, Elias roared. You never listen to stories? Of course, there hasn't been an Ogier here in 3,000-odd years. Not since the breaking of the world. But it's the steading makes the Ogier, not the Ogier make the steading. Just a legend, Perrin stammered. In the stories, the steading were always havens, places to hide, whether it was from Aes Sedai or from creatures of the Father of Lies. Elias straightened, if not exactly fresh. He gave no sign that he had spent most of the day running. Come on, we better get deeper into this legend. The ravens can't follow, but they could still see us this close to the edge, and there could be enough of them to watch the whole border of it. Let them keep hunting right on by it. Whew, sorry, that's a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, safety. Safety, that happened. And only moments earlier, Perrin was considering putting Egwene out of her misery. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ah, just do us a favor and put her out of her misery anyway. <laughs> nah. But it's quite the experience. Like, there's an invisible barrier around this area, and it's called the Steading, which I believe we've talked about a little bit, but not very much in detail. I think it was rever referred to when we uh, mentioned Ogier. Um, you might have to remind me if you don't remember much about it, but um, we have heard a few mentions of four, but just about like the prestigious size and uh, how um, apparently sort of kind of kind of measures up to one in uh, some respects. Well, in the O gear, yes, but I'm talking about the steading specifically. <laughs> okay, I kind of missed that part. Uh, steadings, no, we haven't actually. I, as far as I remember, I don't think we actually heard anything about steadings as right. such. So, I'm pretty sure they have been mentioned, because I do remember the term, but still. So steadings are... I'm trying to think of the best way to describe them. Steadings are like Fanghorn Forest to an extent. <laughs> Not quite. And Anybody who has a hard time remembering Fanghorn Forest, that's where the Treebeard and the Ents are from in the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's it's basically similar to a forest, um, unusually large sized trees, um, specifically thickness wise. A there are a few I should say that are notoriously tall as well, but um, it's going to be kind of a an extraordinary type place considering what it is it itself has like this magical barrier around it without being necessarily magical. It's, it's actually like a barrier of non magic, I guess um, the settings keep out the one power. So um, there's other questions later on in the series that maybe like, can this work in this? Can that do this? And all that, like there's a whole bunch of stuff you could ask in this about setting later on, but we'll get to that eventually. Mm -hmm. um, just remember to ask that question when we talk about settings later on, because they get mentioned yeah. quite a bit, but um, Tuck that away for later. <laughs> I mean, you can, and you can, oh, uh, it's up to you. It's maybe not that big of a deal, but 
it, it's it, it brings out good conversation but essentially studying or where the ogier more or less appeared originally and there's steadings kind of scattered all over the continent and whatnot and uh later on you learn that there's potentially more elsewhere outside of the continent But then you have um, things like creatures of the Dark One can't go in there. And if they do go in there, it's not the merge all pushing them in. It's something even worse than the merge all pushing them in. Um, and if there were Ogier here, they're not friendly to the Dark One's creations nor the Dark One. So it probably wouldn't end well for them either way. Um, but Ogier are typically really, really chill. Um they're very much a druid-like character, and mm. they love to read. They love to talk. They're not as slow as Ents in talking, um, but they are by no means as big as Ents. They are only maybe 8 to 12 feet tall um, and much thicker. <laughs> much, much thicker. Um, and a steading is a place of, as I said, a place of refuge from everything it, it's one of those things where you go to it it's very peaceful and it's very calming on you when you're in your right mind those touched by the dark one can go a little, a little insane in there and those who can use the one power feel the lack of the one power when they go into a setting it's not very popular for people who can channel because it's like using your arm to do your job and then all of a sudden your arm is not there. That's what it feels like. It's you're missing a part of yourself by going in this place. So obviously some people probably not a big hurry to jump in there when they have the ability to use the power. Now you can go in there for a time before it really bothers you that much. But if you're in there for a long time and you have the ability to channel, it'll kind of drive you insane. Um, and you're like, I got to get out. I got to get out. It's like like a claustrophobic type feeling. Um, mm. Now, luckily for Egwene, she has not been channeling very long, but long enough to notice that it's gone and long enough to notice that she doesn't like this place because she can't channel or can't at least can't feel the one power. Um, but for, you know, other people it's probably a great place and anyone who's just a normal human or whatever that doesn't have any affiliations with any, you know, anything evil or whatever. I mean, allegedly, you know, humans, even those in the service, the dark one could come in, but I believe there's a mention later on talking about that and like how they, it changes. It depends on the individual person, I think, but, um, people with evil hearts can come in there without any problem if they're human. So, uh, Trollocs are actual creations. Murdral are actual creations of the dark one. So they're not gonna be able to go across the line. Um, but that's a little bit about the studying history and whatnot. Um, the studying are important to the Ogier because the Ogier have to visit a studying every once in a while. But most of the time, they just live in the settings unless they're out, you know, as stonemasons, which is what they're notorious for. But we'll learn more about that later. Um, so parents, you know, I'm just going to stay right here because I need to lay down. Um, but he forces himself to take steps. I'm, I don't know if anybody's ever, like, ran that hard to the point where your legs turn to rubber. 
and like it's like after a track meet or a cross country meet and you're you just you just can't run anymore that's basically where he's at except i imagine his is much worse considering he's been running almost all day um like they got up at sunup and they're getting close to sundown so it's like oh man that's gotta be rough so oh by the way settings are huge so they could be in this setting for miles and miles and miles. So there's not a whole lot you could really worry about. Um, but parents just like, well, why don't we just stay here? I mean, if it's really a setting, we'd be safe. No trollocs, no Aes Sedai. We can just stay here until it's all over. And he's thinking maybe that the wolves won't show up either. And Elias kind of looks over shoulder at him with his eyebrow raised. And how long will that take? Like, what are you going to eat? Grass like the horse? Besides, other people know about this place, and nothing keeps men out, not even the worst of them. And there's only one place where there's still water to be found. And he frowns a little bit and turns the complete circle, scanning the land. He shook his head and mutters to himself, and he feels him calling to the wolves, you know, hurry up, hurry up. Um, he's like, we take our chances on a choice of evils, and the ravens are sure. All right, let's go. It's only another mile or so. So Perrin would have groaned if he had been willing to spare his last bits of breath. So we got these huge boulders, you know, dotting the low hills, getting these lumps of gray uh, stones and stuff buried in the ground as pretty much as big as houses. Um, brambles are covering them, low bushes hide them. And there's a bit of, it's just a lot of description. Um <clears throat> But eventually they get to this part where they're at the base of the hill is a pool of water. Any of them could have waded across it in two strides, but it was clear and clean enough to, you know, to show the sandy bottom like a nice sheet of glass. Even Elias hurried eagerly down the slope. So Perrin throws himself full length on the ground when he reaches the pool and just drops his head into it, just right in the middle of it. And a second later he pulls his head up and he's like... <gasps> Cause it's really cold water and he's exhausted. So it's like, that's like the most shock you could add to your body willingly. And I'm, I'm imagining it just like, I don't know if you ever like had to uh, feed a little child before and you're like, you know, they're exceptionally hungry and like the food that you put down in front of them is see like scorching hot and they're just like, and just shoveling it in. But then just instantly the heat just reaches their brain. It's like, ah, that's kind of the instant uh, sort of reaction that I've got in my mind. Just like, oh, I'm just... yeah, <sighs> and I mean, this part actually I thought was interesting because it's something that people can skip over pretty quickly. But when he shakes his head, and his long hair spraying a rain of drops, so Perrin has fairly long hair. He doesn't have just like a mat of hair on his head pun intended um he's got sorry. uh took, took me a second there just like you're wait, picturing what? mats on top of parents head like what just kind of punching that like a bird ah, ravens. <laughs> but uh um it's like actual uh some form of a length to it. I'd imagine 
It's probably down the back of his neck a little bit where it's possibly even tied back at this point. Maybe it was short when he left the two rivers and it's just grown mm-hmm. over. The, I mean, that, that seems like a very short time to grow that long. So I'd imagine it have to be a little bit longer. The, uh, the artwork on the books show it kind of like more like a mullet in some of the books, but eventually it just becomes curly. But, um, it's one of those things where, uh, it's it's longer hair, and I I don't see them using that in the TV series. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I don't know, but I don't see them using that. But who's to say? Um, but I just want to point that out. So if anybody gets to the TV series and they don't use it, it'd be like, ha! Source material. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they just shout the TV screen, just ah, ah. source material. Yeah. Basically. Hey, what are you doing? Just nothing. Shame, shame, shame. Sorry, I don't know. Um, I really hope they get it right, but I'm just afraid every time I hear the word adaptation that they're gonna do it wrong. So, uh, I, 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 I might have uh, scuppered things for myself, but uh, I did come across the uh, the casting choices for the show, and uh, we'll we'll worry about that later. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, let's not talk about that on the episode right now, because we're going to save that for much later. <laughs> we can talk after. Um, we'll wait we'll wait for another opportunity to uh, you know, burn that bridge. Yeah, we'll burn the bridge when we get to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get burned. Um, uh, so, Egwene, you know, you know, was grinning at him and you know, throws water at him, and Perrin's eyes kind of like gain a bit of soberness to them, and she frowns, and he just Instead of like letting her say anything, he just plunges his face back into the water. <laughs> He's like, "No questions, not now. No explanations, not ever." And it's just like, "You thinking he's talking? Like you think he's talking about you know having to deal with her questions about the wolves?" But then the next part changes that. It's like, but a small voice taunts him and says. But you would have done it, wouldn't you? You're like, oh, he's talking about lopping her head off. Ah, I'm like, why would she be, you know, questioning anything? But he's taking it really hard because he's like, I would have done it, wouldn't I have? And it's like, well, yeah, if they were actually landing on you, killing her would probably have been the best mercy you could possibly ever given her. Um, But if not, and you weren't going to kill her, then that's fine. Like, it, it's whatever. I don't... I, I don't understand why he's being beating himself up about it. I mean, I guess it's supposed to be because he's not used to killing anybody. Um, but even that, like, I'm not, I don't, ki- I've never killed anybody, but I'm not going to be like, I, I can understand and see that it would be better to kill someone than to let them be torn to pieces by hundreds of ravens and their sharp beaks to the point where your guts are laying on a pool of your bones while your head lays upright somewhere else. Duh. Like, no one wants to survive that. That's not something you're going to survive, but you're going to feel pain and anguish the entire time. A swift just chop and you're done? She's not going to feel anything. So, I don't know why he's taking it so personally. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm not nearly as empathetic towards other things like that. But it just makes makes more sense that he wouldn't be bothered by it than him being bothered by it. I think it's even more sort of just like the kind of principle of it, and you know, actually being prepared for that. And you know, it's sort of just the, the realization of you know, 
That's kind of messed up. Just, you know, just saying. But it's not messed up. That's what I'm saying. It's not messed up. Now, he's like, you know, if if he was just saying, in an hour, if we don't find cover, I'm going to lop her head off. Now, that's messed up. (laughs) But that's not what he said. He said, in an hour is about how long we have until that cloud of ravens catches up to us and we're going to be torn to pieces by ravens. That's what he was thinking, which is a totally different thing. So I don't see why it should bother him that much. I, know, I think that, you know, just, it just like the whole aspect, he'd like devoid of context, you know, just the whole idea of, you know, being willing to, you know, effectively murder, like, a dear friend of yours. I call it a mercy killing because that's what it would be. I mean, no, if you're, no, I'm, if I'm you're, also calling it a mercy killing, but, you know, I, I, you, it's not you, murder. Well, you know, he, the Ravens would be doing like murder. murder He's well, no, it's, it's called a mercy kill because murder is someone killing something innocent that doesn't deserve it. So Ravens plopping onto them intentionally with the delight in killing that the dark one gives them would be murder. Also, ironically, if there were crows, it'd be called a murder of crows. But <laughs> um, in terms of what's actually happening, him seeing her suffer and putting her out of her misery isn't him murdering her because he doesn't want to kill her. He's only doing it to keep her from feeling the pain and agony continuously for however long until the ravens are done. That's, well, that's it's the just, difference. It's, it's just the whole thing that like, some people do sort of take umbrage with, you know, the whole, you know, you, you can be prepared to do something, but, you know, to realize that, you know, you're willing to go through that, you know, they, it might, they do it might be slightly but, shocking, but it shouldn't really keep bothering him. That's the thing that drives me nuts. Um, but Elias eventually, you know, calls him and is like, anybody wants to eat? I want some help. So, Egwene's all cheery, laughing and joking, <laughs> as they prepare this really tiny meal. And there's nothing left but cheese and dried meat, which I mean isn't that bad, honestly. Um, cheese, cheese is always good, and dried meat's better than not dry meat. <laughs> so um, they haven't had a chance to hunt, and but at least there's tea, you know, because they're British. <sighs> of course. <laughs> Would you like some biscuits with that tea? <laughs> Please, sir, I have some more. Um, so, Perrin <sighs> does his job, taking his portions and whatnot, and he feels Egwene's looking at him, growing worried about him. Um, but he avoids meeting her eyes as much as he can, and her laughter fades, and the jokes came further apart, and you know it's always becoming harder and harder for her to do, and longer apart. And Elias just watches and doesn't say anything. And the somber mood just drops on them and they begin their meal in silence. And eventually sun sets in the West and their shadows stretch out long and thin. And then he thinks to himself, parent, that is not quite an hour until dark. If not for the steading, all of you'd be dead. Now, would you have saved her? Would you have cut her down? Like so many bushes, bushes don't bleed, do they? Or scream and look in your eyes and ask why. So he's really beating himself over the head with this. And again, I don't know why, because she's either going to die by ravens or die by him. And I'd take him over them in a heartbeat, unless there was at least some semblance of a miracle where a fireball comes out and just whaps out. 
still, you know, I think there are like some, you know, some things that like people just, you know, fundamentally can't cross. Like, but whatever. It, it's very much a person by person case, so. Well, Perrin pulls in on himself more, and. Something in the back of his mind kind of laughs at him, and it's a cruel laugh. And it's not the dark one, but he wishes it was the dark one, but it's himself. And he doesn't know what's going on, and I can't really blame him, but a cruel side of him seems to be emerging. Um, and then now Elias breaks the rules about fires, and, you know, there's no trees. But he snapped deal bran dead branches from the brush and built his fire against a huge chunk of rock. Um, and, you know, it seems like it's a constantly used place because of the rocks being covered in soot and whatnot. Um, but in this particular instance, the setting is not as tree-ish, if you will, um, mm -hmm. as some of the other ones would be typically, um. It may be because it's an older place and maybe somebody came through and wiped out a whole bunch of stuff to make room for something, not thinking about what's going on. Because a normal human's probably not going to pay much attention when they walk into a, a setting. But people of particular instances, which in this case we have two uh, guys who can speak to wolves and one girl who can channel the one power. So I wouldn't say any of these guys are particularly normal. Um, so. But basically they uh, get everything set up and just kind of like he's gloomy and Egwene's kind of you know thinking as she goes so um, I'll have you pick it up here because this is one of the last readings of the chapter and it's a pretty long one yeah. hey. that she said finally looks like an eye Perrin blinked it did look like an eye, under all that soot. It is, Elias said. He sat with his back to the fire and the rock, studying the land around him while he chewed a strip of dried meat, almost as he tough as leather. Under Hawkwing's eye, the eye of the High King himself, this is where his power and glory came to, in the end. He said it absently. Even in his chewing has he was he absent-minded? His eyes and his attention were on the hills. Out of heart, Wing! Egwene exclaimed. You're joking with me. Isn't I at all? Why would he use somebody to carve here, Arthur? See, I want to say Arthur, but it's, it's not Arthur. that. It's fine, just go. Yeah. Hawk Wing see a high on a rock out here. Elias glanced over his shoulder at her, muttering, What do I teach you, you village whelps? He snorted and he was trading back into his watching, but he went on talking. That's pain. That's Pendrag, right? Archer, Pendrag, Tanriel. Okay. Archer, Pendrag, Tanriel. Archer, Hawkwing. The High King. Unite all the lands here for me, the great blight of the CS storms. From the Eye of Thoshini to the Isle Waste, and even somebody beyond the Waste. Even he sent armies to the other side of the Eye of Ocean. The stories you say you ruled the whole world, 
But what he really did, really, was enough for any man outside of story. And he brought peace and justice to the land. All stood equally before the law, Egwene said, and no man need raise his hand against another. So you heard the stories at least, Elias he chuckled, a dry sound. Arthur Hawkwing brought peace and justice, but he did with fire and sword. A child could he ride alone with a bag of gold from the Earth Ocean to the spine of the world and never have a moment's fear. With the High King's justice, he was as hard as he that he rocked there for anyone who challenged his power. Even if it was he just by being who they were, or by people thinking they were a challenge. The common folk had peace and justice and full bellies. We laid a twenty year siege to Tarvalin and put a price of a thousand gold crowns on the head of every Aes Sedai. I thought you didn't like Aes Sedai. Wayne said. Elias, he gave you a wry smile. Doesn't matter why I like girl. Arthur Hawkwing, it was a proud fool. An Aes Sedai healer could have saved him when he took sick. Or was poisoned, as some say. Where every Aes Sedai still alive, he was he penned up he, behind the shining walls. Using all that power to hold up an army that he lit up in the night with their campfires. He wouldn't have he let one near him anyway. He hated Aes Sedai as much as he hated the Dark One. Egwene's mouth tightened, but when she spoke, all she said was, What does that have to do with the, whether he, that's out of Hawkwing's eye? Just this, girl. The peace except he for you, what was he going on across the ocean? The people cheering him wherever he went. They really loved him, you see. He was a harsh man, but never with the common folk. Well, with all of that, he decided it was a time to build himself a capital. A new city, not connected in any man's mind with any old cause or faction or rivalry. Here, he'd build it. At the very center of land, bordered here by the seas and the waste and the blight. Here, where no ice to die would ever come he willing or he could he use the power if they did. The capital from which he one day the whole world would receive a peace and justice. When they heard he the proclamation, the common people he subscribed enough of money to be a build a momentum to him. Most of them he looked on him as he only a step below the creator. A short step. It took five years to carve and build a start a statue of Hawkwing himself, a hundred times bigger than the man. Raise it right here, and the sea was he sees a rise around it. There was never a city here, Egwene scoffed. There would be, be something left if there was. Something. Elias nodded, still keeping his watch. Indeed, there was not. Arthur Hawkwing died the very day the statue was finished, and his sons and the rest of his blood fought over who he would sell on Hawkwing's throne. The statue t stood here alone in the midst of his heels. The sons and the nephews and the cousins died, and the last of Hawkwing's blood vanished here from the earth, except maybe for some of those who went over the earth ocean. There were those who would have erased even the memory of him, if they could. Books were burned just because they mentioned his name. 
In the end, there was nothing left of him but the stories, and most of them wrong. That's what his glory came to. The fighting didn't stop, of course, just because the Hawkwing and the Zeekin were dead. There was still a throne to be won, and every lord and lady could eat muster if fighting men wanted it. It was the beginning of the War of the Hundred Years. Last 123, really. And most of the history of it at that time is lost in smoke of burning towns. Many got a part of the land, but not got the whole. And sometime during those years, the statue was pulled down. Maybe they couldn't stand measuring themselves against it any longer. Lot of data. Yeah. Quite a lot of history there in that Yeah. Small passage. Yeah. Arger Hawkwing. He was considered the greatest man to ever have an empire. I'm kind of equating him in my mind to uh, Alexander, in a way. Uh I mean, maybe. I mean, his empire... Yeah. Here's the thing. It's really difficult because the actual world and the map we see in the book is only a fraction of the actual planet. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, they keep referring it to uh, the continent and such. Yeah, it's, it's a... Well, a continent, like, Europe continent and the Asian continent <coughs> are touching each other without being separate land masses. So this is just like a continent, but it seems awfully small in its size. And I've run across this when, you know, drawing maps and whatnot for myself. And it's hard to really gauge it to be the size of the actual world and pin it. Because it doesn't take that long to walk across it. We're like, for over here in the States, for me to walk... From where I live to the eastern or western, would be about the same distance either direction. But in that time frame, that's like a twenty-plus hour drive to reach one of the coasts. Um, probably twenty to twenty-seven hours, depending on where you're going on the coast. But that's hours driving. Now, if you're walking, that's probably going to be months to do. If you're riding a horse or have something a little bit faster, like a cart and buggy or something, um, maybe it's a little bit different. But mm. all things considered, I don't I don't think it would take the same amount of time to cover the same type of distance. But maybe maybe it's comparison. If you're trying to say that you know landmass wise they're the exact same, okay, let's hypothetically say that they are. The time. I mean, I wouldn't even put it up against even the Roman Empire, which is hypothetically even bigger than the Greek Empire and the Macedonian Empire. Um, it was probably... Arthur Hawking was probably bigger. Um, but that's also because there's mentions of other continents and other places and whatnot that he had power in as well. And we just don't see them um, physically. So... Yeah, he's he's like an Alexander the Great. He's mm -hmm. like uh, a Roman emperor, but he's not necessarily like he. I would I would argue he's bigger than them, but that's a debate thing. That there's no like set obvious comparison that says, oh yeah, this person is this. They could say it's like this person, but you can never say that this person is on par with this. I would say he's bigger, but that's just my opinion. 
Um, but yeah. it's it's interesting that he controlled so much territory. And then the territory they're talking about is only on this continent, but then he mentions like even some other places on the other side of the Earth Ocean, which means that there's other continents and whatnot. So in terms of actual distance, yeah, if you're going across an ocean, it's still probably further away than what Alexander and even Rome could pull together. Um, but we won't know because there's no map to tell us otherwise or like how far they were, what the other continents were, etc. It's just always focused on the small, small, tiny part. But, um, I mean, he's a pretty harsh dude, but he was great with the common folk. Nobles were terrified yeah. of him, which is funny because nobles are terrified of him, but they also serve him at the same time. So it's just like, uh, how, how do you deal I, with that? I know. Kind of sounding more like my kind of ruler where, you know, you know, the, the people are kind of like the highest priority to him. Or at least, you know, highly, as highly regarded well, as it, as it makes can. it makes you wonder because I think we learn about it later, but I can't remember off the top of my head because it's been a while since I've specifically looked for his particular passages and whatnot. Um, I feel like he started out as a commoner and worked his way into a position of authority for a military, and then basically did a military conquest that way, and basically bought yeah. his birthright of, of emperor through that and that's why he relates more to the common folk than he does with the nobles but at the same time by him being a harsh person he also risks himself with the nobles because the nobles are like that's a lot of territory to control and if i kill him and all his kin yeah i own it all and or at least i can attempt to own it all because obviously other people are mm -hmm. also sitting there in the shadows panting heavily for this potential chance to control this vast empire that's the biggest empire this world has ever known um yeah but yeah uh, actually i was gonna say um the quote about he, you know uh charlie like it would be pack of, pack of like gold. Uh, yeah pack of gold uh that reminds me of a similar thing which was said about the silk road uh once uh genghis khan's uh mongol empire like, you know, was established that a, that, um, you know, a girl could carry a golden plate from one end of the Silk Road to the other and, you know, not have it stolen or, you know, not be Not, not be molest, molested by anybody in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which kind of brought something like that to my mind just when I was reading this earlier. I don't remember how long the Silk Road is, but I don't know if it was that long or not. Oh, it's, ma yeah, it's massive. Um, it well, pretty it much is. It's I, if I remember correctly, I think it pretty much stretches from, uh, from China all the way to Europe. Europe, I think, or it might be like around the way Europe meets. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to mess with the Mongols. <laughs> no, no, like I, Mongols are. Yeah, the Mongols are one of my favorite uh, warrior cultures, th like throughout history. Yeah, so. the Huns were always interesting to me. Not the greatest of people in terms of, you know, how they treated people oh, no. in war. Oh, but... <laughs> no, I'm, oh, no, don't bring that, but, you know, I love me and my horse archers, so. Yeah, I also love my Tarkins. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, he has a very strange thing, but he did think highly of himself, and he hated Aes Sedai. Um, and like all men should. Not necessarily, because you got to remember, men were at one point Aes Sedai as well. 
Yeah. But by the time our Hawkman came around, it was only women. Yeah. yeah, not anymore. Um, so basically, in order to counter the Aes Sedai, he's like, I'm going to build a city in the middle of aesthetic. Now, that could account for why there's not that many trees. Like, they got cut down, they just never grew back. I don't know. Like, somebody prepped the place for being ready for some form of a city to be built. And it just didn't ever happen because obviously they built the statue and then he dies the day after. Um, but this would have been a very momentous location. So in my head, I'm thinking, you know, if I was breaking off of Andor or something like that, I'd build one here because then... No one knows anything about it. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It might be tied to Arter Hawkwing, but few people would probably even know that. Like, I'm surprised Elias even knows that. But, um, I mean, he's got a lot of time on his hands that so he could probably find things out and whatnot. Or maybe he knows some things, which we may learn later from him or we might not. Um, but the statue being taken down at some point, I mean, it's a massive eye. It's kind of reminded me of the... Uh, statues in Athelion over in uh, Lord of the Rings. But it's yeah. a lot bigger than that. <laughs> but um, yeah, anything else on this before we move on? or Well, this kind of thing that like uh, we're basically at the end of the chapter. So well, I know. I was well. going to plot through the last couple real quick, but I wanted to make sure if you okay. talk about this part here, then... No, no, I've got like a very lot you know, to offer right by now. Okay. Um, so basically, Egwene's like, well, you sound like you despise him, but now you sound like you admire him. And he's like, well, you're going to want to get that tea now if you want any, because that fire is going to be out before dark. He doesn't even blink at her. It's crazy. But Perrin could make the eye out clearly, and even though the light was going away and dimming, and it was bigger, the eye itself is bigger than a man's head. And the shadows falling across it made it look like a raven's eye with a hard and hard and black and no pity. And he's like, eh, I wish I was sleeping somewhere else. So. Boom. Old chapter. Crazy, crazy, crazy information. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to cover about the chapter that was like your favorite parts, not favorite parts? Yeah. <sighs> Okay, I don't know if it's just the uh, tediousness of the record, but you know this did feel like a long chapter. I mean, it was technically long, but yeah, I think but, it's just because um, we read a lot rather than blaring through it like I normally would. Kind of that and uh, other things, but um, that's my personal thoughts about it. Um, I, I see. Maybe it's interesting that like I feel that like this chapter was kind of paced a bit strangely well it's rush 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 slow yeah that 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 well i should say it's it's slow rush slow rush slow rush 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 slow yeah the the pacing the pacing did kind of uh disrupt me a little bit before we start recording i did say it was a bit of an intense chapter so oh no i'm not doubting like i'm not you know debating like the fact that like it was you know intense like it did actually kind of get me kind of it did hold me like any other time so i see like okay they're gonna get attacked by you know just a storm of ravens and you know just get horribly horribly murdered but you know 
Um, and also you see like quite a lot of uh, information just kind of dumped at like the very near end of the chapter, which um. Well, the, all all that information was specifically about Arthur Hawkwing, specifically, which makes sense considering they found a giant eye. Yeah. Related to that. But I think, like, you know, pacing wise, maybe you could have done with that just like a little bit, you know, closer to like the center of the chapter rather than like near, it, like, literally like a couple paragraphs from the end. Also, a uh, couple, well, it, it gives us a little bit of history about the Aes Sedai, why they are in this particular setting, a little history about it. It's not just a random setting yeah. somewhere. Um, so that it has a purpose, but I would like to point out for anybody who is wondering, um, since that statue is supposed to be, I believe it was 10 times, if I'm not mistaken, the size of yeah, 10. No, a hundred yeah. times, a hundred times. Wait, wait, so, that would have been a statue that's probably around 600 feet tall, which is a big statue. Nice. Like, ridiculously big. Um, I don't know if I necessarily think that the scale to what Perrin sees to it makes sense, because he's like, oh, I see it. It's about bigger than a man's head. And I'm like, okay, if you're 600 feet tall... Your eyeball should be bigger than a man's head. <laughs> Much bigger. Um, I, I imagine you'd like, you know, that would have been like some... Uh, I imagine like the eye was the size of Perrin. But... I, I think that, like, you know, a bit of, like, artistic uh, license with, uh, you know, just, like, proportions on that. Just that would, like... Uh, yeah, maybe they're just being hyperbolic and saying it's, you know, a hundred times. But I imagine it would be anywhere from 60 to 600 times. Probably more mid-range of that because it also depends is Arthur Hawkwing standing is he sitting is he spread out is he splayed is, like what what position we're not going to know so um that's just my particular view of it but yeah um as for sort of things that like I was interested in the chapter like I am I'm more interested in like uh the like the steadings and uh, I can say like the O'Gears by extension just because they like we start to sort of just see like powers and such beyond you know the one power and the true source and all that which you know I just find like interesting just because we've learned a bit about like you know the one power but like we haven't really uh, learned anything outside of that like you know um things regarding like the dark ones powers and you know oh we haven't really been introduced like too much to the dark ones abilities yet no not yet i mean but, we're uh, in the first of 15 books dude you gotta give it some time uh well i don't know like when things are gonna be introduced and not it's like well thing things will introduce themselves and it'll happen yeah. in a more astonishing fashion than you might expect but um yeah if if you're if your attention is being kept pretty well in hand at this point you're good to go for the rest of the book easily um i don't know like my level of intrigue has pretty much stayed similarly the same like it's basically been like kind of like a upward sweep from like the first couple chapters and then it's sort of kind of 
stayed like a solid like seven out of ten, like uh, up until like the point that we're at. Like it, it has kind of dwindled during like the slower chapters. I just mean, I would imagine like there would have been like any great reveals during those like kind of slower chapters, where I see more like this kind of happen has to happen because you know if it didn't happen, then the like the story would. I'd say in about probably 12 chapters or so, I can't remember exactly, but I'd say about 12 chapters from now, things will pick up to be more, more information coming in about the world in a way that's, in my opinion, extremely interesting, but yeah, we'll see that as we get there. But for now, we're still following three different paths, all trying to converge at some point if they can. And if they can't, it'll have to converge at some point in the series. So um, definitely stick with it, and you'll you'll be more than happy with how this thing goes. And a lot of people early on, when they first read the series, are like, "Oh, I couldn't get past the first book. I couldn't get past the first." I was like, "Guys, what could you not get?" Like, I was hooked to this book as soon as I picked it up. I I didn't take very long to get into this. So I don't know what people think when they're like, "Oh." I just couldn't handle I it. Think, it was too slow. Or was the, I was like, guys, you're crazy. This is fantastic. I do understand. Well, I kind of do understand that, but um, I think that I'm also kind of coming from a different opinion just by the fact that, like... Um, the normie opinion? Well, it's just the fact that, like, you know, I'm reading it for this. Like, yeah, I am reading for, like, my own, like, personal pleasure, but, like... I think that, like, how I would read a chap, like, how I read a chapter from this and, like, my mindset, and, like, the fact that I'm taking a more analytical approach is different to how I would read a chapter from one of the Horace Heresy books or something like that, which is... Well, yeah, I mean, I don't expect, like, I didn't by any means the first time I read through this, considering my age at the time. I didn't read through this in an analytical means by any means whatsoever. I, I went through this sucker... And I just ate it alive. Like it, it was, I had the first book probably done within two to three days. Um, uh, well, then also, I guess this format kind of fits me well, just because I'm a very much a chapter a day sort of person where I sort of just, yeah, I, when I, I, I got an hour, I just read it and it like just go and yeah. But I, I think like, fair, I think, you know, it holds, holds one's attention, you know, fair enough. Like, you know, I didn't, it, my attention did dwindle during like the solo chapters, but I won't say they were offensively slow. There's like, you know, that, like I would have been like, you know, uh, just, I'm I'm gonna like put the book down and do something else and never return to it ever again. Each each book I think picks up more and more pace and more steam in their own way, and they all have their own slow slow parts, but that's because they're filling you in on details or allowing things to come together in a certain way, but while letting you keep tabs on characters. But I don't think it's a bad way to do it, so to speak. It's, I think he did a phenomenal job. But I understand that a lot of people, specifically the normie culture, does not enjoy the descriptions nearly as much as someone like you or me, who's more analytical, might. Um, typically, a in, in normie culture, they want constant action, constant flowing, constant drama, constant backstabbing, constant this, constant that, constant this, constant that, and. I can enjoy that in like a movie if it's like an hour and a half or two hours or whatever. Yeah. But I don't think I'd want that in like a 10 hour film 
that's broken up into multiple films or something like even if it's like the Lord of the Rings, three, three movies, about 12 hours of the extended. I, I don't think I would enjoy just a constant barrage, constant barrage, constant barrage, because you'll eventually become desensitized to that action. And then that doesn't become good enough. And then you get up to the next one and then it's just like pretty much machine gun bullets coming out and they never take their finger off the trigger and then eventually become desensitized to that. And then that's never good enough. And then it moves on to the next thing. And they're always trying to one up this because they're always trying to get a hundred percent of everything every instant, as opposed to like, yeah, this is a little slow part, but then when that pace picks up and the action hits, then it's like, oh, this is gripping. Like I'm biting my fingers, taking off my nails, and I'm just, I don't know what's gonna happen. Please don't let that person die. I like that person. Oh, I hate that person. Let them die. Oh, why aren't they dying? Ah! Like you go nuts because you're not, you're easing yourself into it, into a good story, as opposed to just constantly just blah. Like it's interesting to people who like the Lord of the Rings movies versus the Lord of the Rings books. People like the movies like them because there's a lot of action and stuff. There are even slow parts in it, but it's still consistently something's happening the music's epic it keeps you on your toes whatever in the books it's so much slower so much slower but it's still a great story and the people who read it typically love it it's a little hard to read because of the style of writing it's kind of like an old english kind of reading style but it's still a fantastic series and anything that robert jordan and jerry tolkien write i'm hands down fond of um it's just one of those things where you got to get used to it. Um, well, but once um, you get used to it, I, I think you get stuck to it. Yeah. I was just going to say that um, as time has gone on and, you know, kind of matured and what have you, I have sort of like had a greater appreciation for, I guess, the quiet moments within like stories and such. And I've seen a, greater need for them like you know it just makes more sense narratively to have like you know a quiet moment where your characters can just talk and such and actually personally like um in i, I kind of play like quite a lot of DD games but like some of my favorite moments have literally just been uh mine and someone else's character just sitting down being very quiet and just like slowly talking to one another just because those you can hit those. Fun. You can heat those deep conversations and yeah. get a lot Simultane- of information. Simultaneously, it's been like the most soothing, but also intense situations. Just because it's like we're avoiding a particular conversation point. We know we're going to have to talk about it, and I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. Whereas, is this something we're going to kill each other? Or is this something you're going to walk away from each other? Oh, actually, yeah, actually, or... there, there were like a few situations where we were like we have to come to a solution otherwise i'm going to have to kill you and i really don't want to do that and that was just some of like the really really intense situations but anyway getting off topic yeah um i mean that there's there's got to be a level of appreciation for the slow stuff some of the books will have more slow in them than action but what is happening in those slow moments is very important and people typically just be like, Oh, there's nothing entertaining going on. So this is really boring. And they'll give up on the series or whatever at that point. It's just like, you can't even make it in a series when literally getting to the last book, which has the most outrageous combusted, confusticated flabbergasting type of everything just wrapped up into a, like one single book. It's like, 
it's insane and it's a super thrill based type system so it's like why wouldn't you want to work towards that like even if it's a slow book who cares get to the next book and the next book and then eventually you're going to get to one that's not slow hardly at all and when it picks up to its speed it doesn't stop I guess that's kind of with today with the fact that um you can have like quite rewarding payoff or build up, but if the spectacle is grand enough, you know, people can sort of just like kind of dive into it without any context leading up to it. And uh coming back to like what you said here, like with um the actual contents of the quiet moments. Um again, like I've I've said it like multiple times here, like a lot of the times here the quieter moments with the chapters here that like don't exactly press the narr- like the story on that much. I understand that like narratively it makes sense for them to be here because if you remove them wholesale, then I think that the book would be worse off for it. That it would just kind of seem a little disjointed. Like there would be um kind of little bits of context and such just missing and just like. Just so, you, just so you're sort of doing like kind of the lazy time skip of just seeing so you saying, okay, you're here now. And I'm, I want to point know. something out um, just, for uh, those particular quiet points, especially in this particular chapter, since I know it, it felt a little weird pacing wise. But um, yeah, this, just... the things that we learned in this chapter from the AKA or quote unquote um, quiet moments are things that are actually like character building things. Like we see Perrin, you know, worried about what's following behind them. Then we have Perrin who's, you know, worried, do I have to put my friend down if the Ravens catch us? Then we, we see him battling afterwards with that thought and then seeing a part of him, at least that's cruel and enjoys the concept. Yeah. So that's, actual, that's, that's a character driven stuff that's where, actual. Egwene, we're not seeing it from Egwene's perspective, but we're seeing her be worried. We're seeing her laugh. We're seeing her joke. We're seeing her splashing water at Perrin. We're seeing her vomiting. We're seeing her doing a whole bunch of things that's telling us more about her character. And it's like making her feel like a real person. Like, oh, yeah, so she has more, you know, settings than just a wooden face. You know? Yeah, it's, it's character by insinuation, I guess. And yeah, we, to, to, by the context of her being and like her yeah. action, and well, we can derive that. I mean, even Bella doesn't talk, right? And she yeah, has she, a lot she, of character growth where she's always constantly like aware, like, "Am I nervous?" And then uh, she gets into then she gets into the the studying, and she's relaxed. And it's like that's some form of character. You can tell what drives Bella. You can tell what makes her anxious. What makes her feel like she needs to be aggressive? Whatever, like whether it be the wolves, whether it be ravens trying to rip her to pieces. Maybe she can sense the blood and stench of gore from what the Ravens did to the animals. You can sense those things. Like there is something there, but then you get to things like even Elias, Elias doesn't say a whole lot, but when he talks, you learn so much about the guy. Like before we get to the very last part where he starts by talking to Arter, uh, Arter Pan, Tenriel, like, He's all, you know, muttering this, muttering that, or, oh, we're getting too light. Like, he goes from being, like, a very calm person to kind of, like, very aggravated to very cautious to very, you know, whatever. And 
then he gets to this part where he's just laughing and be like, ah, we made it. <laughs> you know, he's so con like, but even then before he gets to that part, he's watching Perrin heavily. Like he's weighing something in his mind or he knows what Perrin's weighing in Perrin's mind and he knows what's going on and he's just waiting for him to accept it. He's seeing how he adapts to it because obviously Elias had to do the same thing to get to where he's at. So that's what Perrin's going through and through Perrin going through it, it's something that Elias, by doing that himself, he's watching Perrin to gauge where he's at. So these are all different layers of a character. I don't know if anybody can get, tell I'm get really excited about this stuff, but <laughs> um, just a little bit. I, I love analytics and paying attention to the small details like this, and that's why I get really nitpicky about things in the book as opposed to what the showrunners for the show are saying, what other fans in the Wheel of Time community say, and like I don't hate anybody in the Wheel of Time community by any means. I just find myself pitting myself against them about a lot of things because I disagree because I notice these small analytical differences that just don't add up in the full picture. It's like when you put the puzzle pieces together and it comes out wrong, it's probably because you put the puzzle together wrong, not because the evidence isn't all there. It's just putting it together correctly or adding the parts that you were missing makes all the difference in the world. And I feel like a lot of people will jump really early into stuff. Now, some of the stuff they cover extremely well, and I'm like, hat, hat, hats off to you. They know more than I do in those areas. That's perfectly fine yeah. with me. But I do think that there's value in questioning even the quote-unquote official statements because questioning them is not a problem. It's if you can't come up with anything better, that's the problem. So, so very much um, sort of like interpretation and... Uh, well, like a lot of people interpretate... They'll, they'll interpret the certain phrasings or certain paragraphs or certain scenes one way, but then ignore like all other scenes in the series, like all 15 books that equate to that part too. And that drives me nuts. Cause I'm thinking like, well, what about this one? What about this one? This one, this one, this one, this one. Like they pre present some claim like here, this. And I'd be like, but that doesn't go well with this, 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 or this that are all, all are established things as well. So if that's the case, then something's wrong. Now they can also make counter arguments. I just don't ever hear the counter arguments to those arguments because I don't hear anybody providing those arguments to them. So maybe one day I'll be able to you know sit down and have a friendly chat with somebody and be like, "Have you considered this? Maybe because I've watched your guys' stuff, I've listened to your guys' stuff, I've read what you guys wrote and what about it. But is there something else involved? And that's why it's like seeing these little details." The person who typically reads through this on their own, and anybody who's read this this chapter before they came to listen to this or whatever or just pop this on or whatever you probably didn't pick up on all this stuff necessarily the first go or if you did it was subconscious and you're only now realizing that you picked up on it like whatever it doesn't matter but it's one of those things where that's that important feature of it that you don't really see until much much later and then you go back and you realize oh wow I missed all this good, delicious content. This is awesome. And that's just something we don't typically get. So it changes the molding of everything, if you will. And I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the community would be better for itself to give it some, some itself some credit on what it has found that doesn't have anything wrong with it. Like there's no, there's no potential 
clashing of ideas or clashing of uh, passages in the series. Um, but it also needs to take a healthy look at the things that are questioned and be like, okay, well, why? Um, I personally will question Robert Jordan's own views because they clash with his other views on what his stuff is. Like, does he care about something or does he not care about something? Well, one thing he says shows he does care. The next second he's showing he doesn't care. So it's, it's a pity thing. And I love the guy to death. So it's, I don't hate the guy and I'm, I get frustrated with that. It wasn't clarified, but I also can't blame him because he unfortunately did not get to finish the series himself due to unforeseen issues with his health and it finally ended. And this is like, okay, would he possibly have cleared it up? I would have loved to have gone to any type of thing after the series has ended and just clarify things with him in an interview. Just like, Hey, what do you have? What do you think about this? Does this clash with this? Why didn't you clarify this? Blah, 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 blah. Like, but I, I can't do that. So all we can do is speculate, which a lot of this is speculation, but a lot of what other people say is speculation too, despite they like to throw that this is the true facts card. It's, it's really not. It's just their perception because they either want to agree with the simplistic thing because it's the nearest by and they can just, you know, get clicks off of it or whatever. I don't know. I'm not trying to paint anybody as malicious, but that kind of thing is what drives a lot of people in that regard. And I don't want to necessarily push it to that point, but I don't want it to just fly by and let somebody say something that's incorrect. I don't like misinformation. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And that's that. But I feel like it's going to be a, uh, a different stretch if that was to actually happen and a whole lot extra stuff would come about it because all that extra information will come in later and show something else. And I don't know if I'll ever get that chance for all I know. I'll never get that chance, but um, if the chance does arise, it's something I would like to go over. And it, I think it would help having people from both sides or multiple sides, because there's probably more than one side for a lot of these topics um, about basically everything and then just sit down and pick them apart and be like, okay, this makes sense because these things, or this is the consent of all these passages put together about what is what. So maybe that was, I'll stop ranting because <laughs> we can wrap this up yeah. if we need to. So. Yeah. I was just going to say, we're dangerously close into to going into our second hour, but yeah, well, I guess we'll be the first time. I guess, <laughs> I guess we'll be like any anything else to uh, say about the chapter at hand. Might as well move on to uh, shilling and uh, talk about here where you too, dear listener, can uh, engage in some great uh, wheel of time discussions and such, and uh, possibly shout your opinions out at me and Justin. Mostly at him, though. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. You're wrong, opinion, James. You're wrong. Yeah, if you want my opinion, just you know, shout my face. So yeah, basically, yeah, do it politely and respectfully, but do it while shouting. <laughs> well, of course, like how else am I gonna hear you? Well, I mean, yeah, you are in Britain, so you're gonna have to shout pretty far if you don't live in Britain. So um, yeah. Anyway, do you want to do you want to shill out how they can reach us? I'm interested to hear if you can remember all this information. <laughs> uh, You've heard well, it so I... many times, you should know. Uh, my my brain usually just kind of glosses over, but. Uh, you can reach us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, where else are we on? Is it our like the main two? Email. Or... Yeah, so our email at. Um... You gotta, you gotta tell them how to read. Like, what are they looking for? 
It's talesofradarm at gmail.com, right? Yep. What else? Can... And the Twitter? Isn't that also Tales of, Tales of Radarm? Yep. I made this extremely easy for you, dude. <laughs> this is this is super easy. You say you say that, but you you know you're currently uh, trying to spoon feed an idiot at. Uh, well, the training what? session has to begin some point, and I'd rather do it now, or it's more entertaining for everyone listening. <laughs> uh, my, my chat really tired and past midnight, but whatever. That's even better. Uh, so yes, uh, you can reach us on uh, most social media sites. And, uh, you can well, I wouldn't us. say most. I'd say one. Well, two, technically. Most social media sites. Twitter and Facebook, guys. That's it. Twitter and Facebook. Our um, handles, uh, Tales of Red Arm. And uh, you can contact us here directly at uh, Tales of Red Arm at gmail.com. Uh, like always, we ask you that... Uh, you be respectful and um, any old hands uh, with the, the real time community, you know, please try to be respectful and uh, not spoil anything past you know, the current point of episode. Uh, yeah, of the episode that we covered. And uh, yeah, we are very, very interested into uh, like, uh, to hear what you have to say and uh, to, um, you know, voice any opinions and, uh, because you like answer any questions that you may have for us, uh, you know, related to the podcast or personal or anything like that, within reason, of course. I mean, even without reason, but if it's if it's that far out of reason, you got to pay us to do it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, you, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. At... Yeah. <laughs> no, not, not yet. Anyway. Yeah. No. No. I don't think the uh, eight people listening want to uh, <laughs> put that kind of money into us. Um, we're not no, that just... entertaining yet. I uh, just wait. We'll we'll eventually get our OnlyFans, you know, <laughs> But he really he shows all of his book. <laughs> he reveals all the dirty secrets. Well, I think we're doing that already. So I don't know if that you want to go with the OnlyFans for it. But um, uh, I would like to add just to that real quickly. Like, if you guys want to hang out on our Facebook, discuss with each other just as much as discussing with us. Um, if you want to interact with our posts, share them. Get the, get the word out for people to also be able to enjoy the series as well. Um, it's a fantastic series. Different people see it differently. I have my own unique way. I see the whole series as an entire series, but um, there's a lot of different viewpoints. But um, regardless, a lot of people can really enjoy it, even if they don't agree with how each other person well, who reads it sees it. <laughs> So you can well, discuss you know, on Facebook and whatnot. We've, we've always been the like great proponents of uh, you know different interpretations of things, and you know no no one's technically correct or wrong I mean, or anything like I'm that. I'm always so. right, so I mean I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> of course, I mean you know, or you. So how can you kidding. possibly be wrong? I, I I don't know. It's never happened before, so you'll have to let me know if it ever happens. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anyway. I'm just kidding. Um, but no, I mean. Let people know. Let them come join. I mean, have something fun to talk to your friends or random strangers with. I mean, that's always fun, isn't it? You know, nerds unite. That's what we do. Um, but, yeah, if you guys want to try that sometime, let us know. And we'll potentially, if there's if there's enough discussion on the Facebook page, we might make a, a, a sole, like, sub page on Facebook 
just for the discussion so everyone can go nuts on it and maybe make a second one for people who want to spoil it to each other so that way the new people don't have to worry about getting spoiled um, and then the, all the discussions can happen at their own pleasure um, but aside from that I think that's all the shilling we have to give away yes. today and, uh, so yes I guess they join us next time and we will be covering chapter 30 Children of Shadow until then Drink all night and dance all day, and on the girls will spend our pay. And when we're done, then we'll away to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and some of the girls be they short or tall. And follow young Matt wherever he goes to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and some of the girls be they short or tall. Then follow Lord Matt wherever he calls to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll give a yell with a bloody curse, and hug the maids, it could be worse. Let's ride away with the dark woods first to dance with Jack of the Shadows. Yeah! 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 Yeah!